We thank you for giving us this beautiful day. And we thank you for your spirit who works in us. Please now teach us new things. Shape us so we're more like Jesus, we ask. We pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Ever heard of a Portuguese man of war? It's kind of like a jellyfish. Um, that is to say, uh, and has some similarities to the ancient ship by the same name. The man of war, the creature, is found in the Atlantic, in the Pacific, and in the Indian Oceans, and is probably best known for its long tentacles and uh, venomous stingers. One of the interesting things about a man of war is that it's not a single organism. There are four different creatures. It's really a they, not an it. The parts, well, there's this uh, sail that's filled with carbon dioxide and air that allows it to float uh, thousands of miles in the ocean. And then there are the, the tentacles, uh, 30 to 60 feet long. And then there are the stingers that can be fatal to fish and sometimes to people. And uh, then last, there are what are called the polyps, and that's the reproductive part of this creature. Well, each of those is integrated with the others, and none can survive without the others. Um, they float, they hunt, they feed, they reproduce with and for each other. One for all, all for one. What an example from the realm of nature, unity as a matter of necessity, unity in diversity, very much like the body of Christ. As followers of Jesus, we need to see ourselves more and more as united to Christ, and he's also given us a desire uh, to find our place among his people. Belonging to the Lord, we belong to one another. One for all, he for us. All for one, us for him. Today's topic takes us directly to the subject of oneness. We're looking at the results of Pentecost. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture we just read, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. Acts 2, 37 to 47. Now, in this section, Paul tells us about, or Peter, Luke, who is this? Luke tells us about, <laughs> sometimes you get me all mixed up, you know. <laughs> Luke tells us about, um, the results of Pentecost from two different angles. Uh, one is our union with Christ, 
and the other is our union with one another. First, the coming of the Holy Spirit unites the people of God with Christ, and then what we find is the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost has united us with one another. And we'll conclude by making a suggestion as to why this might be practical for the week ahead. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost united God's people with Christ. You'll see that in verses 37 to 41. Now, in verse 36, the part that we didn't read, in verse 36, uh, Peter is gearing up for his application, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Lord had so valued Jesus as to make him king and savior. The Jews undervalued him and screamed, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And so now look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. It's a conscience kind of term. It's something, it's an expression of remorse and guilt and shame all wrapped into one. And so there's deep conviction, there's deep group conviction. See it there. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Deep group conviction, then, is one result of Pentecost, but it's not the only. Next comes open confession. Look at verse 37. Brothers, what shall we do? Uh, the light is beginning to dawn upon this Jewish, largely Jewish audience. How could we have been so blind to put our Messiah to death? Can there be any hope for people like us? Their question is something of uh, an expression of despair. There's, but please notice, there's not a hint in their response. There's not a, a hint of any cover-up. No attempt to minimize. No blame shifting. They aren't making concessions as to some lesser wrongs. There's no attempt to preserve their own respectability. It is an amazing thing when someone's conscience is smitten. Amazing. The proud and the self-righteous are suddenly brought to an end of themselves. They have no resources. There's no place to hide. And they come clean here. Own fully their sin. They don't have to do it. They need to do it, and they want to do it. Peter continues then in verses 38 and 39. He says, Repent 
and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and for your children and for all who are afar off, even those whom the Lord shall call to himself. Two commands and one word of assurance here. What are the commands? Despairing over your sin? Repent of it. There it is. Turn away from it. Whatever the wrong is, stop doing it. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, publicly identify with him and submit to his authority. And the word of assurance, you'll receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So there's conviction, there's confession, and what comes next here? Verse 41, conversion. Did you notice it? Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I wish I had been there. I think to myself, well, about 3,000 souls. Let's just imagine for the sake of discussion that um, it was 3,600 uh, to make it easy, and there were 12 apostles. So each of them needs to baptize 300. And uh, let's say they could do could they do 60 an hour? Well, that'd be, that'd be five hours worth of work. Imagine. I'm sure they didn't do that baptism the way we typically do baptisms. And then what we read is, those who received his word were baptized. That word received, sort of bland here for us, but uh, it really communicates this idea. They gladly received his word. They welcomed as good news Peter's correction and his counsel. What shall, what, what shall we do, they asked, and what's God's answer? To what shall I do once I'm caught? I can't undo the past. God's answer is, you can't do anything. What you need has already been done for you. The one that you murdered has provided everything that's necessary for you to be right with God. Is that good news or what? <laughs> now, what we've seen up to this point is of immense importance. Have you ever been cut to the heart? If so, where did you go with that stinging pain of conscience? Where did you go? Well, God's terms of relationship are really uh, pretty simple. He will not save both you and your soul. Uh, 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 sorry, he will not save both your pride and your soul. 
He will save you, but he won't save your pride in your soul. He is disinterested, totally disinterested. It's more than disinterested. He's opposed to propping up your sense of self-respectability. He's about showing his kindness by offering free grace to someone who is as spiritually messed up as you have proved to be. You must come clean and repent. So, no matter how, how far you strayed, no matter how far you strayed, we want to underline that, put that in bold type, no matter how far you have strayed, if you will turn from your sins and be baptized, you will be saved and receive the promise of the Holy Spirit you'll be united to Christ. That is the best news in all the world. Now, let's think about this from a little bigger picture. I'd like you to note that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is different from the conversions in chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. Those are two different things. Think about what Jesus does for us. He lives a perfect life that none of us could ever live. That's why we need him. He does for us what we can't do. He dies a sacrificial death to pay for our sins. Somebody's going to pay for sins. You're going to pay for your own sins or Christ will pay for your sins. There aren't any other options. Jesus is raised from the dead as the first among the resurrection of all those who belong to him. You can't raise yourself from the dead, but Jesus can. He ascends to the Father there to pray for, reign and rule over his own. And then what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, he sends the Spirit to give new life to those who believe in him and to empower his church to serve him. And I want to say, that's a package deal. All those, that we just all those elements that we just talked about go together. Every part is essential to the whole. Through his ministry, Jesus saves and accomplishes redemption for those who believe in him. A redemption which is objective to us. It's a perfect hand-in-glove arrangement. He does all the work, we get all the benefits. And the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, that's the last, if you will, that's the last of the series of installments that go together to save us from our sins until Jesus comes again at the end of the age. 
But all that Jesus does is life, death, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit. All that Jesus does is of no benefit unless it gets applied to people. It has to touch people's lives in a personal way. And so, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, which tell us about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, is different from the conversion of thousands in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. The beginning of the chapter is about what Christ accomplishes for us. The end of the chapter, broadly speaking, is about the beginning of the application of what Christ has accomplished for us to those who believe. Peter proclaims God's promises. Thousands respond in repentance, and by faith they are united to Christ because of his once-for-all work as a full-service Savior. Believe on Jesus, you'll receive all of Christ all at once. There's new life, that is, regeneration. You're declared not guilty, justification. You're converted, that is, given the gift of faith. You're permanently sealed by the Spirit and then set on a road of growing to be more and more like Jesus called sanctification. If you compare chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 with chapter 2, verses 37 to 47, what you see is this. The beginning of chapter 2, Christ sends his promised spirit with great fanfare. The sound of rushing mighty wind. Flames on those of the early church. And they're speaking in languages that they never studied to the benefit of thousands around them. And at the end of the chapter, verses 37 to 47, Jesus saves 3,000 people without a big fuss. No rushing wind. No flames of fire. No speaking in tongues. The beginning of the chapter is about the last installment of the uh, accomplishment of salvation. The end of the chapter is about the first stages of applying the work of Christ to the saving of lost sinners. The speaking on tongues at the beginning of the chapter is like Jesus' sinless life his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension, a once-for-all event. None of these components 
need to be repeated. Neither does the phenomenon of speaking in tongues need to be repeated. Peter simply says, you will receive the promise of the Spirit. Now here's the point. You don't have to speak in tongues as some kind of proof that the Spirit has come to you. Just take Jesus at his word by faith. You've got the Spirit. You're now united to Christ, fully equipped to tell others about his grace. You've been given all that you need to become all he's designed you to be. Billy and Barbie are a purely fictitious couple, but I have asked them to help us this morning. They're looking forward to getting married. Billy has initiated the relationship. He buys Barbie a ring, he plans where they're going to live, he does all the things, make sure that the insurance stuff is lined up. He wants to take good care of her. And he pledges his life to provide for her and to protect her. And Barbie, she gladly takes his name as her own and she follows his lead. They're united by words of promise and they embark on a journey of discovering what it means to sacrifice and to lose their lives for the sake of greater than uh, for the sake of something greater than either of them could accomplish on their own a new unit that expresses not what she wants or what he wants but what they want together and they grow in a union that they can enjoy and would never be able to enjoy had they been not linked with words of promise to one another. So verses 37 to 41 spell out some of the results of Pentecost. Conviction, confession leading to conversion of about 3,000 Jews and prophylites from all different places around the Middle East. A motley crew of guilty sinners gladly surrender to Jesus and they are united by faith to him. Does that make sense? But there's more. So let's look at verses 42 to 47. Luke now shows us that the Holy Spirit also unites the people of God not just with Jesus but with one another. New believers exhibit, look at verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Steadfastly is the important word here. It means to stick by or to attach oneself to if you're steadfast, you persist, you're devoted, you hold fast, 
you continue in, you persevere. The early church is steadfast. That is, their collective life is marked by faithfulness to a Christian lifestyle. They follow Christian disciplines as a group of new believers. What else? Verse 43. Awe. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They show honor and respect toward God. They're faithful to him. They live out of the fear of the Lord. That's another synonym for, that's a synonym for awe. And next, generosity. Look at verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, did you get that? It's amazing. Selflessness, relational transparency, so that people are willing to say, you know, I don't have any money. Could somebody help me out? Actively caring for one another and a particular eye on those that are the most needy. And it's not something that's compelled. It's the outworking of the grace of Christ. No keeping people at a distance. Letting people into your life. That's one of the qualities here. What else? No favoring people who make me feel more comfortable. There's a reaching out to those wherever the need happens to be. No hiding, as it were, keeping to myself. Rather, there's vulnerability and availability so as to serve generously. And then verses 46 and 47. Day by day, attending the, temp uh, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. The same spirit is in you and the same spirit has the same priorities today as he did 2,000 years ago. Friends recently shared how they listen to sermons. It's informative. I want to tell you some of the things they told me. They wrote this. We've discovered sermons carry applications that point us to being conformed to the image of Christ. We could mull that one over for a while. We've discovered that sermons carry applications that point us to being conformed to the image of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We take notes during the sermon. Our ride home is occupied in a discussion of its message. Later on Sunday, we review our notes and compare what we wrote. 
we make sure to arrive at one clear application for us to be doing during the week ahead. But this is the point. An application leads to a larger habit formation. The application leads to a larger habit formation. They go on. The application is not the goal. It's the larger spiritual formation to which the application points us. An application may be downright silly, or it can be inventive. One stressful week, we sketched a button labeled reset, put it on a sticky note, and put one on each of our desks. And we would hit it as a reminder to reset our wandering priorities back toward God and Christ-likeness. The question we began with was, what do you do with a sermon? And our answer is, done in the power of the Holy Spirit, a sermon brings us to an application that leads to the formation of a spiritual habit and transforms our character toward ever-increasing Christ-likeness. Is that good or what? I'd give them an A+. Well, Christ is building his church. He's united us to himself, and he's united us to one another. In the early church, we see exemplary devotion to the word of God and to the people of God, and we might add, to whomever the Lord happened to bring within the confines of their influence. So, speaking of application, why not ask the Lord to give you a new way to be more like those early believers in this next week? How might he deepen your devotion to the Savior? And how might he deepen your devotion to his people? Particularly those who are new and those who are needy. This is kind of like the man of war, you know? All for one, one for all. And I would love to hear how the Lord is shaping you to be more Christ-like. Lord, would you bless your word to us? Would you help us? We're weak. And uh, we're very needy. We want to go our own way. Help us to repent. Help us to live under your authority. Thank you for your promise to give us the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. And I don't know the number. What is it? 444. That's an easy one. Um,